Hello, everybody. This is Blake with the Science of Personality podcast. Before we get into this very special episode on the topic of paranormal psychology to celebrate the spooky season, I want to mention something strange that happened to Ryan, myself, and our guest, Dr. Larry Martinez, while recording. Approximately an hour into the episode, you'll notice a snippet where Ryan and Larry are talking about the strangeness of these technical difficulties occurring as we were recording an episode on paranormal psychology. Of course, there are multiple logical explanations as to how this could have happened. It could have been an issue with our internet connections, problems with our recording platform, or simply a coincidence. All I can say is that all three of us were kicked off the platform at different times throughout the episode. We'll leave it up to you, our listeners, to determine if this was simply a technical mishap or if there was interference from something unexplainable. With that, let's dive into the conversation. People are the most consequential and dangerous forces on earth. Well, personality psychology is about the nature of human nature. It's about people. And wouldn't that be useful to know? I mean, it seems to me, I can't, I can't think of a more important problem. You're listening to the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments, the global leader in personality assessment and leadership development since 1987. Your hosts are Hogan Chief Science Officer and world-renowned personality psychologist, Dr. Ryan Sherman, along with Hogan PR Manager and resident storyteller, Blake Lepp. Hello and welcome everyone back to the Science of Personality podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sherman, along with my co-host, as always, Blake Lepp. Say hello, Blake. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast, episode 62. Today, Ryan and I are joined by Dr. Larry Martinez, Associate Professor of Psychology at Portland State University, to discuss the topic of paranormal psychology. Larry previously joined us back in June to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and IO psychology is his primary area of expertise. However, he also teaches a course on paranormal psychology, and we thought he would be the perfect guest for our second episode this month, focused on the spooky season. So, with that, Larry, is there anything you want the audience to know about you before we dive into the episode? Um, I don't think so. I'm really happy to be back. And I think I might, I might be the only person who is IO and an organizational scientist and also has a little bit of expertise in paranormal stuff. So I'm excited to get started. (laughs) Well, there's no doubt about that. We were really fortunate, uh, to, to come across your, uh, your, your profile on that. And, and I want to say thanks again, Larry, for, for coming back and joining us. But, uh, I think it was actually at PSYOP, uh, last April, and Blake said, hey, uh, I found this guy and who would be perfect for our October episode, but he's an IO psychologist, too. I was like, wow, that's crazy. Now, I didn't I don't think I ran into you at PSYOP, but uh, but that's when the sort of the idea came forward to, to, to have you come on. So we're super happy to have you back here. Yeah, that's awesome. Maybe next PSYOP we can <clears throat> arrange a meeting. For sure. Well, Larry, yeah, thanks for coming on. And we're excited to do this episode. Uh, The last episode we did was on the personality of serial killers with Dr. Catherine Ramsland. So for our listeners, if you missed that one, you're going to want to go back and check that out. But again, this is our second installment for the the spooky season episodes that we've actually been planning for for several months because I'm kind of a 
you know, a, a nerd whenever it comes to this paranormal stuff. And I like listening to podcasts about that specifically in my spare time when I'm not uh, co-hosting this podcast with Ryan. So, uh, you know, Larry, we mentioned in the intro that your background is in IO psychology, but today we're going to be talking about paranormal psychology, which I suspect will be a wildly different conversation than the one we previously had. So can you start off by telling our listeners what got you interested in this topic in the first place? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's always just kind of been an interest of mine um, growing up. I think it started in elementary school, you know, like I grew up Catholic, but my uh, school had a library with books about monsters and mythology. And I started reading some of those types of things. And that kind of really opened my eyes at a young age to just sort of the idea that, you know, people can create realities around them and that um, people have different experiences across cultures and that there isn't really just like one truth all the time. Um, and the at the end of the Greek mythology book, one of the ways that they kind of reconcile the fact that um, Greek mythology isn't really popular anymore as a religion <clears throat> is that uh, it said gods die when humans stop believing in them. And I thought that was really sort of elegant. So ever since then, I've been really interested in you know, belief and, and what people believe in, why people believe the things that they believe. Well, so, I mean, I think this is a fascinating topic and it's certainly an area that I don't have hardly any expertise in at all. I guess the closest thing that, that comes to mind for me is thinking about sort of like motivated reasoning, right? So there's a lot of research in the personality and social psychology literature on motivated reasoning and or even motivated perception, right? So Gosh, I just just the other day I was watching a tennis tournament, a kids tennis tournament where uh, a ball for the match point, a really critical point in the match uh, landed uh, in and the kid called it out. And, uh, you know, you just watch it and you go well, and everybody could see that it was in except, you know, the kid who was super motivated to call it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so that sort of motivated perception um I feel like it must play a role here. And, and uh, I mean, how do you, how do you feel Larry, or what do you, what do you know from, from the, the courses that you've taught on this? Yeah, I think that that's one of, that's definitely one of the major explanations that we use for a lot of different phenomena. You know, people have scripts and they have schemas and they have these mental representations and expectations for how they think that something should go. Um, and that, that is a big you know, just explanation for a lot of the things that we see. And we see it not just with paranormal stuff, but also with like the example that you gave. And there's research, I think, with people who watch the same football game, right? And they see, right. they interpret very different uh, outcomes, even though the source material is exactly the same. So when you add <clears throat> the, you know, mental schemas that people are bringing in, and then you add the possibility of um, even perceptual, um, you know, degradation or, or, or problems with sensory uh, abilities, then you get all kinds of different explanations. So, so Larry, I guess I, one of the questions that comes to mind for me, I mean, you mentioned Greek mythology, you know, to, I've always wondered to what degree might some uh, concepts around Greek mythology be actually rooted in reality versus, you know, some of its, um, 
uh, sort of added flavor or sort of uh, uh, sort of uh, taking taking uh, a creative license to some actual events. I, I mean, I really don't know if there's uh, w- what evidence there might be for certain actual events and and or, or or not, right? So, I mean, I think about things like you know Jason and the Fleece. Like, well, was that actually a thing or was it all made up as a myth? Like, I you know I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure about the individual stories like that, but a lot of the individual, <clears throat> a lot of the different religions, especially the really ancient ones, are, you know, mechanisms to understand the physical world around us, right? So, uh-huh. like, Apollo is the sun god, and he rides a chariot, and the chariot goes across the sky, right? And that's just explaining uh-huh. why the sun moves, you know? Um, there's a Greek goddess for the night, right? That's sort of the corollary for that. We have Persephone, who spends half of her time in the underworld, and that explains why the seasons change, right? So it's kind of like creating stories that provide meaning to the things that are happening around us. And humans are really unique in that we can um, <clears throat> make correlations between different events, right? So we can make predictions, we can you know, map out the stars, we can map out seasons, that allows for planting, we can domesticate things. These are things that you know our brains allow us to do and make connections that other animals can't do. And I think with that comes storytelling and passing down information and trying to provide attributions and provide explanations for the the things that are happening around us because they are somewhat predictable. Well, Larry, that's, that's all very interesting. And, and also what stood out is you, you kind of got hooked on this as a kid going to your, your library. I remember that's kind of how I got into just being interested in topics like this um specifically there was you know in in the the tiny town where i grew up uh in the library there was a book on bigfoot which i guess is hot around your part of the the world in the pacific northwest Um, and i could i i bet i checked that book out a dozen times i mean (laughs) i'm probably the only one who has so if it's still there (laughs) (laughs) but uh but yeah that's how i kind of got into this as well but I guess for my next question, how would you define paranormal psychology? I'm I'm assuming there's a lot more to it than just ghosts and goblins. Yeah, I think there's a couple of different definitions that you could apply, but the way that we approach it in the class is that, you know, there are things that we can there are phenomena in the world that we can explain using scientific knowledge, scientific methods. <clears throat> you know, we're a scientific society at the end of the day. So that's how we provide meaning to the world. And then there are other things that we can't really explain that science kind of eludes us. We don't have ready explanations for why we're experiencing things the way that we're experiencing things or that we see things that we may not shouldn't be seeing. And um, that's kind of the line. Anything that's unexplainable with uh, current knowledge, with current methods, with current science, that kind of is the delineating marker between science and and paranormal experience. So uh, the fun thing though, is that scientific knowledge is always expanding. So the things that we knew to be true in the past, based on the best science at the time, we now know was completely wrong, right? Like we knew at one point that the earth was the center of the universe and the stars and planets revolved around the earth until we didn't, right? That was just what people thought was true, right? And we knew that dinosaurs were scaly and reptilian until we found out that they also had feathers and we saw the linkage with birds, right? So those are the kind of things that we're all doing as scientists. We're trying to explain the world better um, and more accurately. 
and um, using research to do those things and uh, try to understand the world better. So for all the things that we don't really have a good handle on, that's kind of what we call paranormal. And that can change, right? Because um, we're always coming up with new things and it continues to change. And that's what's really exciting. And I think kind of normalizes the approach for the class, right? I think that you can come into the class with different perspectives. And the one that we take is very scientific and that there are things we can explain and there are things that we can't and you know that may not be the case moving forward so well i think that's a a a great and interesting way to to approach a class of course uh some some years ago i was at a university where uh i think it was in communications they were teaching a course on conspiracy theories uh which uh, I, i guess has some linkages with the topic here uh, and you would think, oh, okay, this would be a course about conspiracy theories, the sort of psychology behind conspiracy theories, where they come from, how you know. But uh, when you actually looked at the syllabus that was being taught, this professor was actually teaching conspiracy theories, like like these are real things that happen, right? And so it was uh, it was <laughs> pretty uh, uh, eye opening to find out that that's what was being taught. So I'm assuming. Uh, you know that you talk about these phenomena, but you're not talking that, that in the class that you teach. You're not you're not teaching like okay, and this is what a ghost looks like. It's it's not an it's not an episode of Ghostbusters in your class. Yeah, definitely. I'm <clears throat> I'm completely agnostic um, in terms of my own sort of thoughts about this stuff, and that's uh-huh. the case with other courses I teach too. Right, I teach human sexuality and you know other courses that are a little bit controversial. So. Everything's data-based. I'm lucky to have found a book for the course that's really, um, it's almost, it's a textbook, basically. So just like we have textbooks in organizational science that are written by, you know, the chapters are sort of each written by experts in their field. That's the same as this textbook. So we have the people that are doing the research or who are doing the, um, who are the experts in whatever the topic might be. And they write an academically based chapter based on the research that's been done on that topic and the different theories and stuff like that. So it's really, really, really um, psychology based. It's very data based. And that's the perspective for the class, which is really nice. And, you know, I tell the students at the beginning of the class, I don't care what you believe. (laughs) Um, Not that I don't care, but like, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm not trying to change your belief. I'm not going to challenge your belief. I'm not going to try and make you believe something or not believe something. Um, my job is to inform you about the way that these topics are talked about in a scientific way um, to the extent that we can. Yeah, so I, I think the other thing that's, uh, you know, we've been talking about this as a spooky season, right? So when you think about paranormal phenomena in the spooky season, you do think of ghosts and goblins, as Blake said. You think of werewolves and, and vampires. Um, but I suppose, based on your definition of paranormal psychology, this would also include things like um, uh, UFOs or alien encounters. Would, would that also be included? Yep, we cover that. We cover afterlife. We cover... Um some of the scientific research that's been done, um, we cover a lot of, the afterlife is a really big um, module in the class. You know, there's mediums, there's poltergeists, there's near-death experiences. It kind of runs the gamut. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty broad course. Well, I'm interested as you're talking about the course, because we're going to be going essentially trying to get a condensed version of the course in this episode. <laughs> you're basically <laughs> teaching us. Um, but I'm curious before we we get a little bit further along into the into the episode, what was was this a course that was already 
offered before you started teaching it? Or were you the one who kind of brought this up and said, hey, we should teach this course? How did that play out? So kind of both. It I had been told that it had been taught many years ago. So I think um, this was a topic that was a lot more popular in the like 70s and 80s. Um, around the time that some of this research was being done and, um, you know, it was really a hot topic. But then I think when the scientific research kind of yielded not a lot of <laughs> actual results, then it came off of the books. And I think I've kind of resurrected this class as one that I thought would be really accessible, especially for undergraduate students, and a way to sort of get them interested in psychology um, and a way of sneaking in, you know, some basic psychological concepts and theories um, and phenomena in a way that would be fun and, you know, people would be interested in doing it. That's very cool. Okay. I was just, I, I had to, I had to ask, uh, but in reading about this course that you teach, it appears to begin with real scientific studies regarding things like telekinesis and telepathy and whether those things are real. Can you elaborate on those studies and their findings? Yeah, this was actually something that I wasn't super aware of before I um, started teaching the course and was um, really fascinating to learn about. So there was a lot of research energy put into these kinds of things. Um, one, for scientific purposes, but also really heavily for military purposes, right? If we can see the enemy's location or if we can, you know, um, disturb their operations from afar using psychic powers, that would be really useful. Um, and there are still labs that are actively researching these types of phenomena. Like there's a really active research group at the University of Edinburgh. That's really fantastic. They're like top notch. Um, but what's fun about this though, is that a lot of the really early research was done not by psychologists, but by physical and like natural scientists, right? So physicists, biologists, that kind of thing. And those researchers tended to conclude that these phenomena were real, like this person is psychic. This person is using his mind to bend this spoon, right? Um, and then people really could read people's minds and, and maybe even correctly guess, you know, which card the experimenter was holding up at better than chance levels. But what they didn't appreciate and what psychologists understand really well is that humans are much, much more difficult to measure than things like gravity or like <laughs> biological processes, right? These things kind of happen independently, of human interactions. Um, but paranormal phenomena, right, are inherently human and humans are clever and humans are fickle and measuring a human one day doesn't mean that you'll get the same result on another day. So psychologists were actually the ones that started debunking a lot of the findings from the more traditional scientists because they realized that, you know, some participants could see the reflection of the card in the experimenter's glasses or the experimenter was giving subtle clues as to what the answers were in other ways, right? So there's demand characteristics. You know, if, you, if you're an experimenter and you find somebody who's psychic, then you can be famous, right? So you're motivated to kind of help them along, even if you're not trying to do so, right, in subtle sort of uh, non-conscious ways. Um, they also found that the cards would kind of get worn over time, and then they would get these identifiable... Um, marks on the back so people could guess correctly or, you know, any number of things that would contaminate the findings, you know, and provide alternative explanations other than this person's genuinely psychic, right? So it was actually paranormal psychology researchers 
that had to get really, really good at methodology, um, scientific methodology. Not only so do you have to design studies to eliminate any sort of contamination, but you also have to account for the fact that you're investigating something that's not inherently face valid, right? Like it doesn't make sense. And it actually goes against everything else that we know about the world. So people are just naturally more skeptical of findings related to paranormal phenomena than we would be if we were to find like a correlation between hostile work environment and turnover intentions, right? That makes sense. (laughs) But um, what these people were claiming doesn't make sense. And if you're going to do um, actual research on this, you have to do it in a way that's really robust and really um, error-free. So the result is that they got really sophisticated in experimental methodologies and um, and really transparent research practices. So like, for instance, um, there's <clears throat> one of the really popular paradigms is called a Gansfeld experiment. And this is, um, if you've seen Stranger Things, they do a pretty good job of um, when they put Elle in like the bath of water and then they cover her eyes and you know, sort of do the sensory deprivation kind of thing. It's similar to that. It's not necessarily sensory deprivation. It's more of a sensory overload thing. It doesn't matter. You look into it. It's really interesting. But this is sort of the um, tried and true method for trying to see if people can actually pick up signals psychically from another person, right? So they put them in this sort of paradigm. And um, what they ended up doing after many, many, many sort of experiments is they did a meta-analysis, one of the first kind of meta-analyses that there are. They're like, we're going to take the average of all of these different findings that we've got. And they declared that psychic powers were real based on all the available data. Well, then another group um, took the same data, added more data, did some controls with the meta and uh, said that their findings were wrong, that psychic powers are not true or real. And then the original team came back and did another meta correcting for more stuff and said that it is. And it went back and forth like this for a long time until finally, and and this is what's really amazing, uh, the lead researchers from the two opposing camps got together and co-wrote like a handbook for how Gansfeld type research should be conducted, right? So specific protocols and controls that need to be in place. They both agreed for the research to be considered really rigorous. And that sort of set the standard. And then it's like, well, if you're not doing it this way, then it's going to be invalid for these reasons. So that just shows really a level of devotion to science that I think we can all (laughs) ascribe to. Um, The other fascinating thing with this that I sort of discovered is that the paranormal journals, there are like journals for paranormal psychology and paranormal phenomena that are peer reviewed. (laughs) They've been doing uh, registered studies for decades now, which is something that we're just now, you know, in organizational science starting to see. And that means that you can let the journal know what you plan to do, you know, the methods, the participants, the controls, the analyses, all your measures. um, And that's disclosed or sometimes even reviewed, you know, peer reviewed by the journal without having the results in. So that way, when the study's done, the journal knows whether you've played with the data by like excluding certain participants or by excluding certain measures or by handling outliers or control variables in a weird way. So it's just a much more transparent way of doing science, which is really great. And the paranormal researchers have been on the forefront of that, which I wouldn't have guessed and didn't know at all before preparing for the class. And there's an interesting sort of counterpoint to this like open 
transparent research thing, um, one of my favorite sort of stories in this context is about this guy who went by the stage name The Amazing Randy. And um, he was somebody who was a magician and he didn't believe in any of these claims for paranormal you know, phenomena that were going around. And he became aware of these really big projects. Um, I think one was called Stargate and then another one was called Project Alpha through the US military to do research on paranormal sort of powers. And he wrote to them and said, hey, I hear you're doing this. I really think it's important for you to have me come in and make sure that I can help you, you know, verify that these people actually are psychic and they turned him down. And I think, you know, the story is that he was kind of a sensationalist. He was kind of a, not a charlatan necessarily, but like a showman, I guess, like they thought he just wanted attention. So they were like, ah, we don't want to be a part of this like publicity stunt. Um, so they didn't ever respond to him, but he ended up sending in his own magicians that he had trained and told them to go and he told them, don't ever lie, <laughs> right? If somebody ever asks you, are you psychic? Do you have psychic abilities? They're, they were trained to say no. Nobody ever asked them, though, and they just had them do these different experiments, which they were able to do, right? They found little uh, tricks that they could play on the experimenters. They figured out where the cameras were going to be, um, who the good camera people were, and they would distract them, you know, strategically so that they could fiddle with the things that they were supposed to be doing. And um, they got really famous, you know, the, they got taken around, they were on talk shows, they were basically kind of celebrities that we found these, you know, psychic people. And then, of course, the amazing Randy exposed them that they were frauds the entire time. And it was really embarrassing and the project shut down. So, um, yeah, transparency and um, a lack of re questionable research practices is just really good. Well, thanks for sharing that, Larry. I mean, there's so many amazing, uh, I think, points uh, that, that you made there. And a couple of things that stand out to me. One is <laughs> the clear, uh, it sounds to me like there's just an attempt to show the beginning of Ghostbusters uh, in, in every one of your classes, right? Where Bill Murray has the, has the, he's holding up the cards, right? So that's the sort of a, a first exposure to this idea, right? That's that extrasensory perception, Um and the idea was with that reinforcement learning, right? By giving people shocks, they would somehow get better at, at ESP. Um, but, you know, in that film, of course, Bill Murray's portrayed as a psychologist and probably didn't give psychologists the best name. But I think the reality is that there actually is a, a real researcher that Bill Murray's character was portrayed after, and that's Daryl Bem. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, his work in that area, and I assume you talk about some of that work in your class, or is that is that not a topic? Yeah, his stuff comes up, and I was surprised also, you know, there's Bem, and there's uh, Michael Ising does a lot of personality uh -huh. research with respect to astrology. That's really an interesting, um, really, really famous psychologists that you know most people would know have yeah, been a um, part of this conversation well daryl's actually my academic grandfather uh yeah. right so uh, so my advisor was advised by daryl bim but uh, he told me that daryl would not allow any of his students to do the esp research because he thought it would ruin their careers so <laughs> so so none of us did any of that work but uh but it's related to another point that you made concerning transparency and i think it's really fascinating because you would think 
paranormal research, that would be some of the most like uh, lax measurement, lax methods. And it's sort of ironic that actually that group has been on the forefront of what is, uh, well, sort of maybe on the side front, right? Maybe they weren't being paid attention to of um, this sort of recent movement in psychology around replication, around reproducibility, um, around credibility of psychological research and psychological results. And I think it's sort of ironic that it's actually the paranormal group that was putting in these kind of protocols, these uh, pre-registered hypotheses, these pre-registered analyses um, ahead of time before everybody else was. That was exactly my reaction too. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the the last thing that this reminds me of this amazing Randy, who I, I don't actually know, um, but there are, gosh, there was a movie, Something Alley. I think it's been remade even, but there was a recent remake of it, I think, Murder Alley. I don't know if that's what it's called. Anyway, um, where that's essentially what uh, the, these, uh, these sort of magicians, not really magicians, right? They pretend that they can read people's minds. Um, sort of learn to do and they use um, they use assistance to get information assistance clue them in on information in various ways and, and you can be amazed by their, their powers or these sort of the, these sort of uh, mind reading powers but you can certainly understand how the military would have been interested in that certainly uh, I think the 70s uh, 60s 70s and even into the 80s a little bit there was this idea of um, you know like psychological warfare, in a way that's uh, very different from how we think about it today, but also very different about from how people thought about it prior, right? It was really um, psychological in the way that you talked about, right? Um, like reading the minds of the enemies and really understanding their plans. In fact, um, this conversation reminds me that uh, the OSS actually showed up at Daryl Bem's office one day to get him to uh, read uh, a letter from Khrushchev, uh, that they believed to be handwritten by Khrushchev uh, because he was doing research on handwriting analysis and understand how his handwriting could lead to inferences about what his true intentions were <laughs> and all of that kind um, of thing. Mm-hmm. So, so a- anyway, just really fascinating stuff. Well, Larry, so transitioning a little bit more here, you know, your course that you teach also focuses on things related to the afterlife and extraterrestrial life, particularly the psychological explanations for this and the implications for believing in such things. So what are those lectures like? Can you give us just a a brief condensed version of, of what you might cover in the class? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and I kind of wish I was still lecturing on this, um, but we've with COVID and a lot of other things going on, it's moved the current version of the class is an online asynchronous version, which is actually kind of nice because there's also a parallel version that's open access through the library. So if you type in, I think this might be how you found me, if you type in paranormal psychology in Portland State or my name, then it, it should show up and, and um, you can access the course for free, all of the stuff we're talking about is, is listed there with links and um, all of that. But <clears throat> what's neat about these topics and the class in general is that it, it really forces us to draw on very different, a- different aspects of psychology and, and social science more broadly. And there's, there's other fields, you know, like physical sciences and um, sort of mechanical sciences that take their own perspectives, but um, ours is really focused on social science. And that's a lot of fun. We get to be really eclectic. So even just focusing on something like the afterlife, 
It's a very broad topic in and of itself. It touches on aspects of grieving and coping, and those are heavily influenced by culture and the types of mental schemas that we bring into those situations. So we see those kind of things play out. Um, there was a big emphasis on mediums and communicating with the with people who passed, and you know the early instances of that really played upon people's sensory perceptions. If you think about a seance, right, like the classic kind of like eighteen hundreds style. <laughs> seance, um, you put people in a dark room, you have them concentrate, you have them close their eyes, you have them hold hands with one another. And that really puts them in a sort of a susceptible position. There's usually a long wait time for the spirit to come. So people kind of get bored, their sensories, their sensory perception kind of plays tricks on them. Um, they can't use their hands because they're holding hands. So you kind of, you can kind of hang things from wires, um, without people bumping into them. You can make the table appear to move on its own because people's perceptions are skewed. Um, there's also, I'm not going to remember the name of this phenomenon. It'll probably come to me later, but, uh, in a dark room, if you shine uh, a spot of light and you're looking at it, it appears to start moving after a while because that's just the way that your brain and your eyes interpret that kind of sensory um, stimuli. So there's things like that. Um, but then like the modern versions of the same type of thing, they take you know social scripts and social psychology and it inverts them to try and lead people into a place of belief, right? So like cold reading is an example of this. So even just with the two of you here, if I were to say, you know, I'm, I'm getting a psychic um, message from the afterlife um, related to angels. One of you has something, somebody who's passed that is angelic. I'm getting the word angel, or it might be a person's name, or they liked angels, or maybe Angela, or Angie, or Anne, or Annette, or something like that. Like, does that ring a bell for either of you? My mom thinks I'm an angel. Right. So, um, <laughs> your mom is still alive? <laughs> uh, yes. Okay, so somebody <laughs> may be connected to your mom then. And we could, we're going to stop it here because I actually think this is a highly unethical practice, but that's the kind of thing, right? You start with something like that and then you um, follow the thread and people get really good at baiting people into eventually identifying with something that's said, right? And there's it's a silly example, but there's a South Park episode about this that gets it right on the money. <laughs> As they often do. Thread. yeah. So you see that kind of, you know, they're, they're taking the way that we've been trained to interact with one another and to agree and to give facial feedback and, and all of that and, um, you know, sort of perverting it in a way to make people believe that you're actually talking to their dead loved ones. Um, you also see aspects of things like prejudice and stigmatization play out with early descriptions of things like epilepsy or Tourette syndrome. You know, you see um, without an explanation, a medical explanation of what that is, the explanation at the time was they're possessed by a demon, right? <laughs> um, and that that kind of leads to sociological implications too. So if you think about, you know, if you're a religious leader um, who identifies and then cures somebody of possession by a demon, then that, that fulfills a lot of, it checks off a lot of boxes. So one, it demonstrates that demons are real. <laughs> um, it strengthens the belief of demons and by extension, you know, angels and heaven and hell and God and Satan, those are real things. Cause here we have this physical example of it. And it also confirms the power of that particular religious leader, right? Because then they've cured this person and they've exercised this demon out of them. So 
that has a lot of um, actually really positive things for uh, the community. It builds a sense of community. It strengthens a belief system. And I, sort of ironically, it also is kind of a way for people who might be stigmatized to re-enter society, right? So if you have been outcast and then you are possessed by a demon, then you get cured of the demon, you can join back, right? So it's kind of a clean slate for even the people that have been ostracized. So thinking about these things in that way is just a really different perspective. Um, you mentioned aliens. So like with respect to aliens, the scientific consensus is that a lot of uh, alien abduction experiences can be explained by um, a combination of like societal level expectations and like scripts and schemas for what an alien abduction kind of looks like, like what it should be like. And that matches um, a lot of the experiences that people have with sleep paralysis, which is a very real, you know, sort of medical condition. <laughs> and um, that's, that's sort of a, a, the best explanation that we have right now, right? That doesn't mean that alien abductions aren't necessarily happening, but we have a pretty ready explanation for the types of things that people are reporting when they say that they've been abducted by aliens. So you get drawn into lots of different aspects of psychology, depending on what the phenomenon is. And, you know, of course there are still some things that we don't really have a ready explanation for. So that's exciting. Well, it explains why, you know, aliens are always green. Uh, you know, even it's like, right. Like, well, what is that? What's up with that? Well, clearly it must be that that's what we've decided. Right? Aliens must be. Although I did see, uh, gosh, I think this was a recent scientific study suggesting that in fact, we're all from Mars or something like that, that, uh, some, uh, a comet or something collided with Mars and knocked little, uh, particles from Mars onto earth. And it was those little, uh, little microbes that, uh, eventually started life on earth. So there you go. Um, so anyway, maybe we're all Martians. Um, yeah, I think that's referred to as panspermia. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. 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 Uh, I did remember the effect you were, you were thinking of is autokinetic effect, right? So yeah, if you, if you're in a dark room and there's a light on a wall, it'll look like it starts to move. And so all of those kind of like, um, perceptual things. And I think that's why, you know, the reference to the magician earlier makes a lot of sense because in many cases, that's what magicians are doing too, right? They're taking advantage of perceptual limits or um, perceptual sort of biases that, that, that you know, are sort of pre-built in that, that humans have. Um, and, and so I think a lot of this does sort of play on that too. So that that's a really... Uh, a really interesting look look at some of these and i also remember the name of that that film it's called nightmare alley mm. and it came out last year but i think there was an original version of it um like in the 40s or something but in any case the the film is is in much of the film is about someone who is um using these tricks using certain methods to um to, to do mind reading and as sort of like a carnival act uh, kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, it's really fascinating. Yeah. Well, Larry, what about cults? That's, that's one that I find interesting. And we actually had an episode on this topic featuring uh, Dr. Adrian Furnham earlier this year, which Ryan and I definitely found to be fascinating. Um, how do you address the topic of cults and the implications of those associated with them from a, a scientific standpoint? 
Yeah, so we we do cover cults, and um, cult indoctrination is actually kind of a pretty intense term for something, a phenomenon that kind of happens in a lot of different contexts, some good, some not so good. Um, But um, what's interesting is that although, you know, the different belief systems of individual cults are different, and sometimes very different, um, they do tend to share a lot of common elements. So there tends to be a dominant charismatic leader who has a radical view for the future that's counterculture to what's going on. They tend to start from a place of love and acceptance and, you know, they're touted as being a solution or like a safe haven from things like hatred or war or racism or famine or poverty, all the things that people are struggling with and kind of worry about. So um, they also tend to target young people around age 20 and young people tend to be kind of vulnerable because they're trying to establish, you know, what they believe in. They're kind of trying to figure themselves out. They tend to also have really sort of like us versus them mentalities, right? And they tend to isolate their members from anyone with different viewpoints. Um, over time, they eventually bring people closer and closer into the social network and sort of strip them of any resources that they might have. So they become more and more dependent on uh, the group. They also tend to have pretty elaborate social structures um, within them and going against the majority or against the the viewpoint or against the leader can have really negative interpersonal consequences, right? You get ostracized or whatever. So people become really vulnerable because they become dependent upon the group, but then they're also sort of somewhat victimized by the group itself because if they don't conform, then they can be punished or they can be kicked out or, you know, it can get really violent in some cases. And we see, you know, we've seen some cults that take it to the ultimate extreme, So what's interesting, though, is where cults and organizational science kind of overlap is in the context of transformational leadership, right? Like cult leaders and fringe religious and and fringe political leaders who have especially devout followings tend to meet the definition of what we consider would be transformational leaders. So, you know, I like to make those parallels. You know, I started my substantive line of work. Um, on diversity and discrimination through, you know, a fascination with the Holocaust and like, how could this have happened? And what, you know, what was going on psychologically? And the reality of that situation is that Adolf Hitler at the beginning was really good for Germany at first, right? Like he built infrastructure, he made Germans feel good about being German again. He had, you know, a conflictless military victories and the German people for the most part really kind of liked him. Um, he was kind of their savior, right? But you can see how that devotion became perverted in, you know, such a horrific way that was terrible, even for Germans themselves. So, you know, that notion of like, with great power comes great responsibility, which a lot of people think about Spider-Man, but really goes back to, I think, early writings by, you know, Sir Francis Bacon really kind of plays out here, right? So you can be charismatic and be transformational and those can be really good things but with with cults you see these certain combinations of elements that um come together to create really terrible things so do you talk at all about you know specific um cult leaders like i'm sure charles manson would be one or david koresh are though are they topics in your class as well um so they we do cover a couple of them in a really sort of um, not abstract, in a really sort of um, like in a not very deep way. Um, But the one that we focus on in particular is Jonestown. 
Jim Jones. Um, I think that's one of the more famous ones. And it has, it's like the stereotypical like prototype of how this started. Jim Jones was the charismatic leader. He's anti-racist. He's anti-poverty. He's bringing people together. Um, is a very, very like multiracial group in particular. So what he was building was very intuitively appealing at the time. You know, people think like, oh, I can't believe you're joining a cult. <laughs> Nobody thinks they're joining a cult until it's obvious and it's gone completely sideways, right? So that's the thing that's really difficult is cults don't appear to be like cults until you get into them. And, and Jim Jones and Jonestown is a really, really exemplary um, you know, instance of that. Well, Larry, uh, your, your description of uh, uh, cults was, uh, as you were describing, I was saying, boy, that's uh, alarmingly similar to how we might describe political parties today in the U.S. So uh, <laughs> maybe that's not so great. Um, but at the same time, uh, the, I was thinking this podcast is, you know, the science of personality. And we've talked a lot about paranormal phenomena, um, who uh, might perceive paranormal phenomena, uh, what what that constitutes. But I guess I'm more interested in uh, who's more susceptible to believing paranormal phenomena, who's more interested in paranormal phenomena. I mean, are there individual differences in these? And, uh, you know, what what might you have to tell us about that? Yeah, there's quite a bit of research on personality uh, as predictors of paranormal belief. But one that's really interesting in particular is something that's called fantasy proneness, which is exactly what it sounds like. So it's like the propensity that one has to believe in things without objective proof, right? So there's a lot of research that shows that people who believe in paranormal things and also in conspiracy theories tend to score higher on measures of fantasy proneness. Um, but what's interesting, though, is that a dominant predictor of fantasy proneness, unfortunately, is childhood trauma. Um, and this kind of makes sense because if you're a child who's experiencing abuse or another traumatic experience, you know, an adaptive coping mechanism is mentally escaping to a different alternative reality, you know, a different reality where things are better and where you're safe. So trauma contributes to, you know, people being phone prone to um, believing in fantasies, which again is a major predictor of paranormal belief later in life. So, But, but I would also think yeah. that would be related to sort of creative um, outlets as well, right? So are people who score high, for example, in fantasy proneness also more likely to work in creative writing or um, just in the creative arts in general? I think that that makes sense. Um, I don't know if that's true off the top gotcha. of my head, but yeah, by that logic, that would make sense. Mm-hmm. Well, Larry, your course addresses reasons people believe in things like monsters or witches, haunted places. What are some of those reasons? Uh, and are you seeing a spike in the amount of people who believe in these things? I, I only ask the latter part because there seems to be a high volume of podcasts and documentaries out there focused on these topics. Yeah, I think I'm not sure about the trends, right? I don't um, keep track of like the frequencies necessarily. But I think by that logic, it really would make sense, you know, if if fantasy proneness is a result of trauma, and we've all kind of um, been a bit traumatized by the last couple years for a lot of different reasons, you know, I think that it's really adaptive to, you know, have the ability to shield oneself from some of the more traumatic realities that are happening. So it didn't it doesn't surprise me if there's you know, an increase in things that are interesting that aren't 
the objective reality right now, you know, fantasy types of worlds. Well, Larry, sort of related to that, I, I guess that it comes up all the time. There's this idea of, you know, full moon. When it's a full moon that there's, you know, I don't know, people are more rambunctious or there's more likely to be paranormal events. Uh, does science have anything to say about that? Yeah, that's a good one. So, um, the, the science, the psychological explanation for those types of things is, um, the illusory correlation, right? So like I was saying before, humans are really, really, really good at identifying patterns. Uh We're good at making predictions based on patterns. Um, And what we see is these two events that seem to be happening coincidentally, right? They're they're coinciding um, with one another in a way that appears to us to be um, causal, right? And for a lot of the time that's really adaptive <laughs> the ability to you know identify patterns and make predictions is a really really good human trait um but it also leads to errors right sometimes we see patterns in things that aren't there so um when you're thinking about a full moon and you know crime rates or you know people acting weird or whatever those types of things tend not to come through with like correlational data um, and the example that I like to give in class is like, if you're thinking of a song, right, you're driving in your car, you think of a song and you think about, and then the song comes on, right. right? And you're like, wow, I can't believe that happened. I must be a witch, right? I have powers to make the radio play the song that I'm thinking of. And that sticks out, right? For our human brains, that's a pattern that we recognize. It's coincidental. And it's like, wow, that takes up a lot of cognitive um, precedence. But what we don't think about is all the times that we thought about the song and it never came on. Or it came on when we weren't thinking about it, right? So There's lots of people in lots of cars thinking about songs and somebody's bound to be thinking about the right one. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that explains a lot of these other sort of phenomena. Not exactly, because you get some really specific stories, right, about near-death experiences or about um, visions or dreams that are very, very, you know, like, they couldn't be a coincidence. And, you know, on a population scale, you're absolutely right. There, Those two events are going to happen randomly uh, to somebody. So, what we're good at is ascribing meaning to those coincidences. And that's again, like the scientific way that we would explain a lot of those things. Well, another question, Larry, you know, as an IO psychologist, you know, how might your work kind of uh, intersect with the course that you teach on paranormal psychology? Yeah, so this is something that I wasn't expecting to happen at all. But um, my work is, re- is, like I said before, focused on diversity and inclusion. The opposite side of that is, you know, discrimination and stigmatization and prejudice. And one of the things that's come through really, um, we spend a lot of time talking about witches and Salem witch trials and um, Spanish Inquisition and stuff like that. And what we see with the witch sort of phenomenon is um, pretty aligned with what we're still seeing with regards to gender norms, right? And gender norm policing. So um, one of the things that we um, know from a lot of the witch stories, we think about, you know, Hocus Pocus has just come out with a second um, 
right? The second um, version, the second, the sequel. And the storyline there, right, is that there's these three witches and they're aging and they need to look younger and they're trying to match the feminine sort of, you know, they're trying to be beautiful, right? And they have to steal the youth from children in order to do that. That's a very common, like, that's the witch sort of trope, right? And it um, sort of stems from, if you think about how witches were sort of identified um, back when, you know, witch hunting was happening, they tended to be people who were not married. They tended to be people who were sort of outcast from society. They were, they were especially not at first, not the dominant members of society. They lived out on the outskirts. Sometimes they lived out of town. Sometimes they were poor or they had something sort of wrong with them, right? So they were stigmatized already in the society before they were accused of being witches, right? Not the other way around. So what you see is um, people who are violating, women who are violating traditional gender norms around fertility and around child rearing and around beauty and femininity, those are the people that are targeted as witches first, right? And then it kind of <laughs> went sideways after a while. And we see the same sort of thing, you know, in organizational science research. So there's research by Jen Birdall and Lilia Cortina that shows that agentic women, right, women who wouldn't be considered, you know, feminine or in line with feminine ideals or who are assertive leaders tend to get punished, right? It's sort of this damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of thing. And those motivations underlying the treatment that agentic women receive aligns almost perfectly with the same types of motivations for accusations of witchcraft, right? So that was a parallel that I wasn't expecting, but I think comes through really clearly. And other people have articulated that, I think, a lot more um, uh, concisely than I just did. So, Larry, one interesting thing, I'm glad you brought up the the Salem witch trials, is once upon a time, my grandma, she got really into genealogy at the end of her life. And, um, you know, was researching everything on the internet and then putting together volumes and volumes of our family tree. And I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know what she was, if she was just trying to, you know, spook me or whatever, but she said that we were descendants of uh, someone who was accused of being a witch in, you know, around the Salem witch trial times. I'm not sure what happened to that person. Um, obviously somehow our family tree lived on, but that was just one interesting story. So I like to joke with people sometimes that I'm a warlock. Um, but, but you know, I haven't, I haven't really uh, proven to have any powers as of yet, but we'll, we'll see, you know, there's still, there's still time left. So, uh, but <laughs> but I guess, uh, you know, this has been a great conversation. Uh, I, I have one more, uh, actually I have a question before my final question because I would hate myself if I didn't actually ask it. Have you ever had anything strange or paranormal happen to you that you couldn't explain? Ooh, yeah. The students love to ask, they'll ask this and then they'll ask me what I believe in on the last day. Well, let's just um, go ahead and let's just lump those two questions together. um i've had two experiences that at the time i thought were paranormal and ended up not being um there was a monster outside my bedroom that turned out to be my grandfather snoring and um there was an alien in my room that turned out to be a vacuum cleaner that my mom had put in the night before and i didn't i'd forgotten about it 
but there was one that I don't really have an explanation for. Um, I had a babysitter that was a live-in sort of caretaker when I was little, and she was telling me a story about how at a previous place that she lived, she had a ghost or some kind of like spirit following her around. And that um, when her sister had left for the, to go, I don't know, the sister had left the house and she locked the door behind her. And then a few minutes later, the door swung open and my caretaker thought that her sister had come back when she went to go um, open the door. When she went to go see, the door was open, but nobody was there, right? And as soon as she told the story, the front door to my house blew open. Wow. (laughs) And I swear that uh, it was locked. So that's the most paranormal thing that um, has happened. Well, okay. So... Now here's my last question. Where does science go from here as it relates to the things we discussed today? Do you think science will ever definitively prove that things such as ghosts or witches or monsters are real and would uh, society accept it? Yeah, I think there are definitely things that we don't understand now that we will be able to explain much more scientifically in the future. I, I don't think that's a controversial statement. Um, but I, And I think some of the stuff related to the afterlife, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, claims of reincarnation, that's an area that I think we don't have a lot of consensus around. Like, well, this is what it is, right? Like, alien abduction, there's kind of a consensus. Like, well, it's probably this, right? But with this other one, these other types of things, we don't really have a lot of evidence or good ideas about that. So um, I think there's a lot of really exciting stuff. I have a basic sort of you know, discovery channel knowledge of like quantum mechanics and entanglement and stuff like that. So I wouldn't be surprised if that connection was made at some point in the future, that there's some sort of connection that persists after, um, after life. Um, with other things like ghosts and witches and monsters and in the way that we think about them in the Halloween context, you know, like things that scare us, things that are spooky. I don't think we'll see anything like that, but in another sense, I think that these things are kind of real because we've created them. And there's some people that argue pretty convincingly that, you know, we probably have created a lot of these types of monsters because we need them. You know, they, they serve a very specific psychological purpose that can help us reconcile, you know, collective guilt or anxiety. So like there's kind of four broad um types of monsters or types of monster stories. So there's some movies where people are cursed because they're stolen. They've stolen some kind of an ancient artifact or they built upon like an ancient Indian burial burial ground, which I'm not even sure is a thing that exists, but um, these types of stories are supposed to help us, you know, kind of confront and reconcile anxiety around things like colonialism and, and genocide. You know, like these are things that have happened historically that we might feel guilty about. Um, there's another class of monster, you know, like Jaws or like King Kong and movies about like natural disasters that can kind of help us confront, uh, and deal with anxieties about, uh, climate change and the, our impact on the environment. There's another class of movies, uh, Frankenstein, the orphan Godzilla. And these are like about monsters that we create. Um, so there's kind of a God complex. There might be some anxieties related to parenthood even. And then the fourth one is, Um, you know, things like Dr. Jekyll or the werewolf or zombies, these are monsters that reside inside of us. Um, and 
you know, they could come out, you know, it's our most basic sort of taboo innate desires and what, what would happen, you know, if you brought that to a logical conclusion. So these things could be considered, you know, real parts of our existence because we created them, presumably because we need them. So sort of thinking about, you know, well, why do these monsters exist? Why did we create these particular things? Or why do aliens look the way that we think that they look? And what does that mean about us? It's kind of a fun way of um, reverse engineering all of this. A paranormal psychologist would make note of the fact that we're having so many technical issues on this particular recording. <laughs> That's true. That's funny. That is true. Yeah, wait, this is. You should have mentioned that at some point. <laughs> Well, Larry, uh, you mentioned the Indian burial ground and you weren't, you know, sure if that was a thing or not. Um, one quick story before we get out of here. Uh, there is uh, a coworker of mine um, who actually lived in a rural part of Oklahoma um, prior to moving back closer to the, the Tulsa area. Uh, their house out in the country was uh, adjacent to an actual native American cemetery. And they had a number of uh, spooky things going on, but particularly um, they had, she and her husband had a child and for about the first six months after you know, they, they were still living in that house. The child was constantly crying, waking up in the middle of the night, you know, just, just screaming all the time. And then they decided, well, we're going to put the house on the market uh, for various reasons, not just the spooky stuff. But then they moved closer to town into a new house. And just like a light switch, the baby just became the perfect angel, didn't cry anymore at all um, or very little compared to what they were used to in the at the farmhouse. So uh, just a little little story there. <laughs> that's kind of it was it was creepy whenever she tells it because she's a very rational person and whenever she gets spooked by something like this you kind of your ears perk up a little bit so yeah I, that's a really good example because um you know the the basic sort of model for <clears throat> a lot of the class a lot of the phenomena that we talk about is that there's some sort of sensory thing that's happening right there's some sort of stimuli you hear something you see something the baby's crying, you know, whatever. And you don't have an attribution for that. You don't know why that's happening. Uh, but then at the other, there's also a potential explanation, which is a paranormal explanation. So in the absence of a physical scientific explanation, the paranormal one becomes really intuitively appealing, right? And that's how a lot of these things, you know, get connected. So you know, I think that some things that come to mind with that story is like maybe there was some sort of a frequency that the baby was responding to, or you know, that like a <clears throat> some sort of. There's been um, some instances of like houses that the wind hits it in a certain way and it creates a vibration that makes a noise that is a sub sort of um, auditory noise that still has an implication for the way that the brain reacts to it. Some people talk about carbon monoxide uh, gas leaks and how that that can create, you know, um, il illusions and and um, different <laughs> sort of stimuli. So, yeah, and the the basic idea is like in the absence of this is the if you've seen ancient aliens, right? There's the guy who's like it's aliens, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> right. Like in the absence of anything else, it's just it has to be aliens, right? And then that 
because we don't have anything else that becomes really, you know, the default. You know, in fact, you mentioned carbon monoxide. In fact, a friend of mine from graduate school, uh, she and her husband had moved to a new house and she said, ah, we think our house is haunted. And I was like, what? And she says, yeah, every time we're home, we just get really sleepy and really tired and we lose energy. And the first thing that came to my mind was carbon monoxide. I said, "Uh, do you have like a fireplace or anything in your head? She said, yeah. I said, I think you want to get that checked because I I think you might have carbon monoxide. And it turns out they did. That's exactly what it was in their house. Yeah. So, so there you go. Well, look, Larry, I just want to say thanks so much for coming on. This has been a great episode. It's always good to have you on here, and we really appreciate you coming back to join us. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been I love talking about this kind of stuff. Yeah, Larry, I echo Ryan's sentiments, and uh, we look forward to bringing you on again at some point. Uh, we'll, we'll, I'm sure Ryan will. We'll see you at Psyop. Uh, gosh, what in April of next year? Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Who knows? Maybe, maybe they'll even send me up there. Who knows? But, uh, but, uh, yeah, again, thanks for, for coming on and, uh, looking forward to, to releasing this episode for our listeners. Yeah. Let's definitely keep in touch. And that does it for the science of personality podcast, episode 62. Be sure to join us in two weeks for another fun and informative episode. Cheers, everybody. This has been the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments. You can access all podcast episodes on our website, scienceofpersonality.com, or on the streaming service of your choice. See you next time.